we are uh, continuing a series called Relational Formation. And uh, what we're looking at is how do we change? We're building this on the idea that everybody wants to be accepted just the way they are, but they don't want to stay that way. And that we all want to be able to somehow grow and become better people. And how does that actually occur through the way that the Bible describes it? And so we were looking a few weeks ago that the beginning of change is simply being aware of the problem. That if we're not willing to be honest and say that there's an issue, there's no way that we're ever going to be changing. And so awareness and honesty was the first step. And then we talked about assessing. That, uh, okay, it's good to be honest. It's good to be self-aware. But we need a way to evaluate how we're doing, whether our thoughts and beliefs are healthy or not. And so God gave us his word to instruct us. We, last week we were uh, in Multiply Again, we were talking about the authority of Scripture and the importance of it. And I want to read a few verses, and they'll be up on the, up on the screen in a minute. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. 2 Peter 1.21 says, Scripture never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through hum though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. The Word of God that you and I are able to have in our hands is anointed and inspired by the Spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, We also thank God continually because when you received the Word of God, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is the Word of God. Certainly, people, humans, uh, wrote this. But they wrote it on behalf of and inspired by the living God. And so we receive this as God's word, not just human words. Matthew 5, 18 says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Proverbs 35, which is just a remarkable thought to me. Every word of God is flawless. So uh, every word in this book is flawless. In the Psalms, it says that they were refined seven times over as gold is refined. Psalm 19.7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Now, uh, we are absolutely lost without an objective, tangible, written word of God. Everything will become subjective and what we think is true or what we think isn't true. We need something concrete to live by and to evaluate our thoughts by, and it's the word of God. So I can't overemphasize the importance of that. But there are at least three challenges that we face as we try to understand God's word. The first is interpretation. Now, uh, you know, if you have studied God's word, there's a few things that are hard to understand. Second Peter 3.16 says, uh, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do at the other scriptures. Some things are hard to understand. So, 
uh, uh, the women here, I, I don't think I see any of you. Maybe, maybe there's one or two of you are wearing a head covering. But in, in 2 Corinthians, it tells women to wear head coverings in church. So, you know, a few of you are going, phew, I'm glad I wore mine. Um, but, uh, but, you know, why aren't you if you're a woman? So how did we, how did we interpret the Bible? Now, don't worry, you're doing fine. There's, there's ways to understand these things. You're doing fine. There's uh, a group of people inside of the church that would say that Christians, fully supported by Scripture, should not ever carry a weapon or take anyone else's life. Thoroughly convinced that that's what the Bible teaches. There's another group of people who would say the opposite of that. So you have inside of Scripture people who take this as the authority that it's meant to be and reach different conclusions about it. What do you do with that? There is a, a group of people that say that the, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, when it talks about six days, that's a literal six days that God created the whole world. There's another group of people that say that those six days is intended to be a metaphor, that it's not a literal six days. So uh, Christians argue over these things and debate them. Now, understand that it's said within the confines of treating the Bible as the authority. But even when you settle in your heart that this is the authority by which you will understand God and live your life, there is debate. So some people say, you know, uh, be aware of, you know, be honest with yourself and then assess your beliefs according to God's word and then do that. And that's just clean and simple. But when it comes time to work that out, it's, well, which interpretation do I have? And now it's starting to get a little complicated, isn't it? It's not just a matter, well, just do what it says. Well, Scripture itself agrees that some things are hard to understand. That's number one. Number two is that we can treat the Bible as a list of best facts. And so our, the reason why we read the Bible is to find the best group of facts that we could live by. So uh, when it comes to this process of change, we become self-aware and then we assess ourselves according to the Bible. And what the Bible is intended to do, we think, is that it's going to tell us a bunch of stuff that correct us. And so we just need to find the corrections to our beliefs. The stories don't really matter. Uh, just the pithy statements that tell us what we should do and what we should believe. Uh, John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40 have been verses that I've continually gone back to because I, I long to be uh, a person of the word. But this is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of the day, and he says this to them. He says, you study the scriptures diligently 
because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So here you have a group of people who are uh, thoroughly committed to the word of God, have devoted their whole life to studying this book, and the author of that book steps forward, and they can't see him. They can't recognize him. They don't know who he is. So what's going on in the way that they read this Bible that would miss seeing the living God in it? This is concerning. It's possible to read the Bible in such a way as to miss God. <laughs> but it's possible. And one of the ways that it's possible is to treat this as an answer book, as a life manual that you hunt through it for little tidbits for how to help you improve your thinking and your beliefs. And I think that we all do it. We, uh, you know, when do we read our Bible more? When we're going through a difficult time. And so we, uh, we open it up, you know, hopefully, you know, more toward the end, because that's a little bit easier to understand. And we put our finger in and, and hope that God would speak to us about something profound. And it's kind of this hunt and, and see what God would say to give me a word that's going to help me in this moment. Now, go ahead and do that, because at least you're reading the Bible. But we need to understand that there's more going on to Bible reading than researching how to improve your life, uh, using God as your help. There, there's more going on to Bible reading than that. Uh, truth is not a list of facts. We were talking again in Multiply, which needs, it needs to be a, a huge um, sign for us that two-thirds of the Bible is story. Now, if God was wanting to just tell us what to do and give us a list of facts to believe, what's he doing with all the stories? Like, just say the point. I was telling them, I'm the kind of person that when I, when I read a book, and I'm, I mean, I, I know many of you aren't, aren't like this, but I am. Uh, when, I, when I read a book and there's a story, I just skip over that part because I don't care a lot and just say the point. So I wait until the end of the story and I wait for the last line. And I go, thank you. You could have saved me, you know, three pages of reading. Just say that thing. And I, you know, I know it's not very creative or romantic, but I, uh, that's how I think. But we can see the Bible that way. Like, like Abraham, really? Does anyone care about Abraham? Lived super long time ago. Jonah, was he even real? And then we go into those, you know, and we're, we're just like, just, we just say it. Like we don't even know, you know, like he tells a story and then we don't know whether that was a good one or a bad one. He just tells a story. Like, what are you doing? Are you messing with us? Are you playing kind of a hide-and-seek thing? Like, just say the thing that you, I want help. Just tell me something now that's relevant, that isn't about Abraham. It's about me. So 
interpreting the Bible is a little tricky. And then understanding what its intent is also a little tricky. That it's not nearly as helpful as we hope it would be. Just to finally encourage us, number three is paradox. If you've read the Bible, you'll discover that there's tons of paradoxes inside of the Bible. So we've come through being self-aware, and now we're going to assess our thoughts according to the Bible. But the problem is we don't know which Bible passage to pick to assess what we should do or think. So in this moment, should I forgive the person that I don't like or should I confront them? Well, now it just got tricky. Like you're, you're in both instances, you're going to follow what the Bible says to do. The Bible tells us to rebuke people and then to turn the other cheek and to be silent in front of our accusers. So which one? Is it rock, paper, scissors? Or how are you gonna, how are you gonna decide which ones of those you're gonna choose in this moment? The Bible tells us to work and to work hard. It goes so far as to say that if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. That's encouraging. And then it says to enter into the rest of God and to not just treat Sabbath as one day of a week, which is a very good thing to do, but also to live in the rest of God. So maybe we should all, you know, quit our jobs. We have a wonderful government that can support us. And we're going to rest in Jesus. Won't that be special? So which one do we do? do are we going to work hard right now? Or are we going to rest right now? How do you know what to do with what the Bible is speaking? Isn't this fun? Uh, what about uh, whether to receive or to self-sacrifice? Because the Bible says to do both. So if you're in a relationship with somebody, in this moment, should you just receive love and care? Or should you lay down your life for them? Which moment is this? Is this a receiving moment or a giving moment? I pick three. There's dozens and dozens, not contradictions, but paradoxes in the Bible. So we can feel as though we're, we've arrived when we've made the Bible our authority. And yes, that's excellent. But as soon as you've made the Bible your authority, it actually opens up a whole bunch of other complications. So why then is the Bible so complicated? What's, what's going on? Is God being tricky? Or does he have an agenda that is different than ours? And is his way of producing change in our lives different than what we think change should look like? How it should happen? I think the reason why this is all so complicated is in one sentence, that truth is a person. John 14, 6 tells us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life.
So listen to this. God wants to be known, not used. God wants to be known. He doesn't want to be used. God wants to be known. He doesn't want this to simply be used as the best of the tools available to me. And you should be grateful that I picked your tool, God. No, he wants more than that. He wants to be known. And so what he did is he wrote us a book about himself, full of stories. When Debbie and I were, uh, were first dating, uh, we wanted to get to know each other. And so how do you get to know somebody? You just tell stories. And so uh, if you know my wife, she's a great storyteller. And uh, the kids now love teasing her because they can say her stories. We've heard them like a couple times now. And we, they say the stories along with her. And if she changes the story slightly, they go, no, mom, this is, she goes, oh, yeah, that's right. And they correct her stories now. Now, what's going on in a dating relationship and the kids telling us uh, and us telling our kids stories? What's going on? Am I trying to make a point? You know, every time I tell a story, that, that that's a teaching moment. You know, am I trying to, you know, and so, son, what really happened then was God was teaching me. I'm just telling you about me. And sometimes that can be disappointing for us. Look, I'm going through a really hard time, and you're telling me about your friend Abraham. I don't care about your stupid friend. I want you to think about me right now and help me right now. And he's not anxious, and he wants to tell you about Abraham because he really liked Abraham. And he would like to share that story with you because it's interesting to him. Like, what a... Like, what are you doing? My life was falling apart, and you're telling me another story. And then even when you get around to the New Testament, when you say what the gospel is, every time you say what the gospel is, it's referring to a particular group of people that you're talking to, and it's not just a, a list of truths. Why do you keep doing that? Why don't you just say something to me? And I think that Jesus' response is, um, what's going to change you is knowing me. What's going to transform your life is not a tweet. It's a relationship. And the reason why you're so messed up is because you're living in reaction to all the other people in your life and you don't know me. Or if you know me, you have misconceptions about me that cause your life to be warped and distorted because you're living in reaction to a, an assumptions of who you, ha who you think I am and not who I really am. 
And that if you were to know me, it would change your life. Not because I gave you a good piece of advice, but because you would live in response to who I really am. And that would transform everything. Because the problems in your life and mine is that I can't see God there, wherever there is. And if I could see him in that place, well, it would change everything. Do you understand? I don't need advice. I need relationship with the living God. When my kids were little, um, and there would be something really large, so they're five years old, and there's something that weighs 50 pounds for them to pick up. Uh, to, it needs to be moved. And if I say to my five-year-old, use your legs, not your back. Does that help? <laughs> like, it's, they're, they're still not going to lift that thing. You know, you know, put some sweat into it. <clears throat> Try levers. Any, uh, any help I give a five-year-old is dumb because they're five years old. What they really need is, Dad, I know you can lift it. And that knowledge changes the moment because I'm involved in it now, larger, and able to do something that they can't do. The biggest lesson that they would need to learn in that moment is how to need me in a moment not how to fix their problem within their own means. Their life changes when I'm included in an impossible moment. Are you following me? What if that's called most of our life? Five years old, 50 pound weight. And that's mostly what's going on. And we're screaming out, is it levers or legs? Which one is it? And he says, find me there, and it's going to change everything. Because the truth of this moment is who I am, not what you're to do. And to make that shift is, I would venture to say, the most dramatic change that could happen in our life. So, you know, sometimes I think God must be, it must be frustrating to be God because he writes us a book to reveal himself to us and then we worship the book as a how-to manual for how to live our life. He's going, oh. I mean, how do I win? I'm trying to have a relationship with me and no matter what I give them, they miss the point. What changes us is an intimate relationship with who God really is, not who we imagine him to be. What changes us is when we see him for who he is.
and we listen to the stories and we go, that's who you are. And if that's who you were for Abraham and Jonah and David and Paul, if that's who you always have been, then that's who you are here for me now. And now I see you in a new way and everything is different. I see the truth of who you are. And that is what changes our lives. So how do we connect? Uh, we're going to expand this last point next week. We're going to spend a whole other week on this because it's just so important. But let me give you a bit of a teaser or else it's being cruel. The magic word is abide. I love this, uh, I love this word because it, uh, it's not a common word, and so it means that we have to pause and think about it. And what the word abide simply means is to live or to dwell or to rest in. Second John 1.9 says this, abide in the teaching of Christ. So we have a teaching, and we're to buy, abide in it. We're to live in it, to dwell in it, to rest in it. Uh, Joshua 1.8 says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. It means to mumble it all day long. Uh, meditate on it day and night. Just, just bathe in it. Immerse yourself in it. Don't solve a problem. Know him. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. I think of the, what is the best way to, if you have marital problems, what is the best way to deal with those problems? Is to build a relationship of trust and love before the problem. Because otherwise, you're just scrambling and living in crisis mode. So, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean. We all do it. But most of us turn to God in a moment of crisis, and then we're hunting for relief, and then get mad at him for not coming through the way that we expect him to. But there are some things that can only be solved with an intimate knowledge of God that has occurred over Weeks and months and years. And there's no way around that. It's knowing him. And so that when that crisis moment comes, you have a history of knowledge. Not intellectual knowledge, personal knowledge. Knowing God. And so when that moment comes, you're not shaken by it because you have a history of knowing him. This is why we exhort you to read your Bible every day. It's not to be legalistic. It's so that you can have a context for crisis. You can have a context for whatever happens to you in any given moment. You go, okay, there's a whole bunch of moments in here that kind of echo that. And I saw how God was, what God was like here and here and here. So it's easy to extrapolate that into who he is here. And now I find the peace that I was longing for. And in that place of peace, there is something for me to do. But it's no longer reactive and damage control and just trying to find relief. 
It's walking out in the presence of my God who I know and trust and follow. And the change that occurs isn't about crisis management. It's about living in response to who God really is, not who we imagine him to be. The first problem then that we have in change is to clarify not what the truth is, but who the truth is. And as we know who he is, we then live in response to him instead of reaction to the world around us. In conclusion, worship team, you can come up. We are changed by intimately knowing who God truly is. We're changed by intimately knowing who God truly is. Now, just one more example, and then we're done. Come on up. Uh, so sometimes, Debbie and I have disagreements. I know it's hard to believe, because we're both such wonderful people. But uh, we'll, have, we'll have disagreements. And uh, I'll look at what Debbie does, and I am, I am not a little certain I'm positive she's selfish. It's beyond a shadow of a doubt. The evidence is clear. And so, uh, so what I do is I meditate, listen more to her. I go, okay, this is what you did. She goes, yes, great. Step one, uh, why did you do that? And she says, oh, I was thinking about this, this, and this, of how this would be helpful for you and for the kids. And I go, really? She goes, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Now, let's just go through this one more time. So you did that, and that's your motive? There's no way that, yep, that's your motive. Now, the only way that I'm going to have a better experience of my wife in a moment is if I listen long enough to hear who she really is and not who I imagine her to be. My life moments of depression and confusion and guilt and shame and it, on and on it goes are solved by pushing through my assumptions of who God is and discovering him intimately. Not a better set of facts, although that's also true, but an intimate knowledge of God. And I go, that's who you are in this moment? Fascinating, because I could have sworn you didn't care. I could have sworn you were impotent and cruel. I could have, looking at the evidence, that's my conclusion. And my only freedom from my assumptions is to know my father through listening to his stories and his sayings. And now I'm set free and I can now receive who he really is in those dark parts of my life and in those mountaintop experiences. And it all changes because I know the truth, the intimate truth about who he is. Father, I pray that you would give us a new way to change, not by getting better advice, but by worshiping a better God, by seeing you for who you really are, not trusting in our assumptions, 
not trusting in what we perceive to be evidence, but moving beyond that to knowing you. I thank you for your word as an introduction into knowing you personally and intimately through your stories and your sayings. And would you, by your grace, give us the ability to truly know you? Because in the light of your presence, everything changes. Uh-huh.